and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Elizabeth Brough, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. Concurrently, Elizabeth is a columnist with Foreign Policy magazine. She is also the author of God Spies, the Stasi's Cold War espionage campaign inside the church. Elizabeth Brough, thank you for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. I wish we were speaking during a more stable and tranquil time globally, discussing scenarios. But on the 24th of February 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched a full-fledged invasion of Ukraine from multiple locations, via the north towards Kyiv and the south from Crimea. There were also missile barrages and artillery on the northeast focusing on Kharkiv, and the east, targeting Mariupol. This is an invasion of a peaceful, sovereign, independent nation on a scale that we thought was confined to history in Europe. Was this invasion inevitable, and could it have been avoided? In the short term, it could possibly have been avoided, um, it happened because Vladimir Putin decided that he would like to, to attack Ukraine. Had he not decided that he would like to attack Ukraine, uh, clearly we would not be in this, be facing uh, this tragedy that we are facing now. I think in the longer term, we have had three decades, more than three decades of phenomenal uh, peace, prosperity, uh, growth, and uh, frankly, uh, 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 an almost exceptional period in, in European history, indeed in, in global history, I don't think it could last. Countries are like people. <laughs> there are always uh, going to be countries, leaders of countries uh, that will refuse, who will refuse to get along with, with other leaders that will be countries that will refuse to get along with other countries. So this phenomenal stretch of growth and prosperity and peace that we had uh, was an anomaly. And we have to remember, it's not just Russia that is, um, that is behaving in a belligerent fashion. China is doing the same, not yet with an armed invasion of another country, but um, also refusing to get along, to, to uh, play according to the rules of, of the global community, uh, and that is, um, unfortunately, I think that the way the world always develops, you will have some uh, more peaceful, prosperous periods, but they will be followed by conflicts. And we thought, or many people thought that this time it would be different. No such luck. No such luck, indeed. A few days prior to the invasion, uh, Putin told the world, effectively, that he did not believe that Ukraine should exist as an independent country. He uh, gave a what effectively was a 5,000-word uh, rant about 
Ukraine and Russia and their intertwined uh, histories. Was he effectively warning that there was going to be this uh, invasion that would take place? Yes, he was warning uh, of an invasion. Even those of us who have been paying close attention to him now for for years, uh, even those of us who who have done that, we didn't think that he would follow through on those threats. We thought that he would would do a bit more saber-rattling. We thought that he would uh, be menacing, and we thought that he would... Uh, then pull back from the brink because simply by being menacing, simply by using tools other than uh, military force, you can actually harm a country a great deal. And that is what Russia has done to Ukraine. The Ukrainian economy has been suffering quite badly in recent months. Investors have left. And that is uh, as a result of those Russian soldiers being uh, uh, massed at the border. Most of us didn't think that Putin would then follow through with, with a traditional military assault, simply because you can do so much uh, with other means. Clearly, he feels he has scores to settle. And I think he is so isolated that he may be uh, misjudging the situation. He may be uh, getting more paranoid uh, <laughs> than he already was. So clearly, from his point of view, this is what he needed to do. I think, not just I think, it's clearly the result of a paranoid uh, understanding of the world. And that's the mistake most of us made. We thought he would act rationally. But if you, are, if you have developed a paranoid view of the world, you may not act rationally. It's interesting that you say that he's become paranoid and isolated. There's a belief that during the pandemic for the last two years that Effectively, he cut himself off from physical contact from uh, many people, but that this Ukraine obsession was always there in the back of his mind. Is it also an issue that he has just been advised very badly or that people in his inner circle are too scared to advise him? I think we have all been cut off during the past two years uh, because we uh, we have been forced to work remotely and without uh, regular interaction, not just with our uh, co-workers and colleagues, but also um, without regular interaction with others. And for for a world leader, for the leader of a country, uh, that means fewer opportunities, less interaction with your fellow leaders. And that came at exactly the time when that would have needed to be regular interaction between Putin and Western leaders to reassure him in his um, clearly um, increasingly paranoid mind that NATO is not an aggressive alliance, that Ukraine poses no threat to NATO. Uh, COVID removed those opportunities almost completely and uh, made his, it seems to me, made his paranoia even worse. Then uh, there is, uh, as you mentioned, the additional thing of his advices. It seems that he has uh, reduce the number of people or the number of people uh, advising uh, him have uh, naturally uh, reduced themselves uh, simply because he is somebody who doesn't like to hear uh, a strong opposing viewpoint. He seems to like yes men. And so experienced diplomats uh, and, and other advisors have uh, 
fallen by the wayside, either removed by him or uh, neglected, ignored by him, or uh, realizing that that their views were no longer of interest. And uh, that's an extremely dangerous situation uh, if it involves any country, but especially if it involves a country as militarily powerful as Russia. Absolutely. And it's worth pointing out that when it comes to this uh, alleged concern that Putin has about uh, NATO, if you look at a map, uh, for example, NATO nations that border Russia, it's very few. You've got the Baltic states uh, and perhaps a sliver of Kaliningrad, which uh, is also connected uh, through borders with uh, some countries in Eastern Europe. But the the landmass uh, physical connection between NATO and Russia is, is quite insignificant. And the irony is now by occupying uh, Ukraine, effectively the, uh, the borders that Russian troops now ha- uh, occupy uh, potentially has quadrupled in terms of its connections with NATO. So it's quite clear who is actually the one pushing that aggression towards NATO. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think the, the, the narrative of NATO threatening Russia has always been a, a red herring, but clearly a very effective red herring um, because the, the Russian uh, population, the, the, the voters of Russia have not uh, punished Putin or his party for, for, um, for this uh, obsession with NATO when really one could argue that they should have focused much more on domestic Russian issues where reform is is desperately needed. Um, Many of us, including uh, Putin, uh, experienced the Cold War and he seems to be uh, stuck in this mindset. Um, I'm somewhat younger than than Putin, but uh, for every single one of us who had with with any sort of... um, memory of the Cold War, we remember what the standoff it was between the two sides and how the Soviet Union crumbled without the noise. Um, uh, it was clearly extremely humiliating to the, to the Soviets and especially to the Russians, who then lost many uh, of their fellow Soviet republics, because lo and behold, the fellow Soviet republics were not that keen to be, to be closely involved with Russia anymore. Uh, his mind seems to be stuck in that Cold War mentality um, when really so much of the rest of the world, including some former Soviet republics, especially the Baltic states, have moved on to a, to a more collaborative world. Um, but uh, we clearly can't change his mindset. We thought we could in, in, um, in the early, even up until the early 2000s and uh, and uh, well, later than that, uh, in his early years as president, um, that was not the case. Uh, George W. Bush thought he could uh, he could uh, do business with him. Many other other leaders thought they could, and most recently, Emmanuel Macron thought he could. Just a few days ago, uh, it was not to be. It was not to be, and Putin. When he declared war on Ukraine, he pledged to oversee a what he described demilitarization and denazification of uh, Ukraine. Uh, one point here is that it, Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir 
Zelensky him, is himself oh. Jewish. Uh, so I do find it strange why Putin uses this uh, term of denazification. Uh, it's clearly a propaganda uh, tool. But do you think that resonates uh, with people in Russia? It's so easy to call somebody you don't like a Nazi. <laughs> so many people do it. And clearly Putin has discovered too that, that if you don't agree with somebody, you just call him a Nazi. And, and immediately, instantaneously, his or her reputation is damaged. Um, and I suppose it, 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 it does work in the sense that um, it's easy portray, to portray a country that, that wants to rid itself of a of sort of a colonial power almost. To, it's easy to describe them as, as belligerent or, or, or as neo-Nazis when all they want is, is freedom. Um, and I don't think I need to remind anybody who listens to your podcast that when the Baltic states back in the, uh, in the very uh, final years of the 80s, when they, uh, the few uh, brave Baltic activists who did dare to talk about the independence when they when they did when they did make that case, many Westerners, many people in Western Europe thought they were uh, they were a little bit odd. They were too nationalistic, uh, and uh, as a result, didn't take them seriously or look down on them because uh, they were supposed to be happy in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, now they are happy outside the Soviet Union. They were proven right, but there is this tendency to always um, look a bit askance at, at uh, people who act uh, out of a sort of a, a, a nationalist feeling when uh, in fact all they want is to, to live um, in their country in the manner that they decide for themselves. Absolutely. And the Baltic nations are becoming a key member of not just NATO, but of the European Union as well. And they've thrived, as you said. Um, British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, um, he spoke about a and warned about a tidal wave of violence. Uh, are we looking at the dismemberment of uh, Ukraine? Well, if we track back to the fact that we first had the annexation of Crimea, then the instigation of nefarious actors in the Donbass region, primarily in Luhansk and, and Donetsk. Is this the carving up of Ukraine? Uh, and will that be an ongoing uh, protracted process? Ukraine has already been carved up in, uh, through the, 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 those two breakaway republics uh, declaring themselves independent. So Ukraine has already lost its territorial integrity. Um, unfortunately, the loss of those two breakaway republics is the best case scenario at the moment. Uh, so um, what we're looking at uh, as we speak is Russian aggression against the rest of Ukraine. And let's hope that, uh, that, it, doesn't, that it doesn't succeed. The Ukrainians are, are uh, as far as we can tell, putting up uh, an extremely brave and, and skilled fight against the Russians. So. The, Russians, uh, the, the Russian troops uh, already involved and, and, and those likely to be added are facing more resistance than uh, Putin seems to have calculated uh, would be the case. Uh, 
and that raises the hopes that uh, Russia will conclude at some point, hopefully very soon, that it's it's not worth losing more more blood and treasure uh, on this foolish enterprise, and uh, will as a result withdraw. I don't think that will be the case. Uh, Putin clearly has scores to settle and he doesn't hesitate to use to risk his own citizens' lives to uh, to harm Ukraine. Um, but I, I think the important thing to remember is that Ukraine has already lost parts of its territory and now uh, risks losing even more parts of it. One aspect that you've written about and, and spoken about is these notions of hybrid and gray zone threats, because this is very relevant and important when it comes to uh, the role of Vladimir Putin and what is now unfolded in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit more about what hybrid and gray zone threats mean, and then also explain the context of how that has been implemented in the Russian strategy uh, upon Ukraine? Yes, a hybrid, uh, just like a hybrid car, hybrid warfare is a combination of two different uh, means of aggression. So kinetic and non-kinetic or above the threshold of armed violence and below the threshold of armed violence. Gray zone uh, aggression is, or gray zone warfare, I say gray zone aggression, uh, is um, the aggression that takes place exclusively below the threshold of armed violence. And that's where... We have seen so much, um, what should I say, innovation in in recent years. Uh, There has been an explosion of activity in this area simply because uh, there is so much you can do as the aggressor country um, and so much you can achieve. uh, And the cost is so low because you you, you don't, uh, in most cases, you don't uh, risk any lives. And in most cases, it's also cheap. Uh, financially speaking, uh, you can uh, you can engage in cyber aggression. That's uh, a, a long-standing form of gray zone aggression. So is disinformation. But more recently, the, the area that has been booming is corporate coercion, uh, as uh, as conducted mostly by China. Then there are additional uh, means you can use, for example, the weaponization of migrants. But the point is that it's very easy to, to innovate in this area. You just need to, to find a tool that's available and then you use it. And it's very hard for the uh, targeted country to respond because it's, it's, not, it's not military violence, but it's also not nothing. So how do you respond? It's very interesting what you're saying because we've seen this uh, hybrid and gray zone uh, dynamic being implemented with full force against uh, Ukraine. We saw the cyber threats uh, where Ukrainian servers were taken offline, uh, and that was done on multiple occasions. We also saw several false flag operations taking place where it was alleged that the Ukrainians were firing into uh, the areas of uh, Donetsk and and Luhansk, and effectively they were then proved to be actually untrue uh, and that this was disinformation from uh, the Russian side. There were a lot of efforts to try and dispel and unveil the hybrid and gray zone threats. Uh, 
uh, in the hope that that would uh, curtail or reduce the potential of a Russian invasion. But sadly, it seems that maybe Putin got frustrated with the fact that the psychological operation strategy wasn't working. So he didn't care so much anymore and decided that the full-scale invasion was going to take place regardless. He seems to have been impatient. Um, Earlier this month, in fact, uh, on the 15th of February, uh, the global insurance body that that, uh, classifies um, water, bodies of water in the world according to uh, the the risk uh, of sailing through them, uh, elevated the Russian and Ukrainian parts of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov to its highest risk category, uh, which means that uh, shipping companies uh, face much uh, bigger obstacles, enormous obstacles, um, if they want to uh, sail into those parts of the Black Sea, the Russian and Ukrainian parts of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, to deliver cargo or um, pick up cargo. And as we all know, Ukraine has no other ports. Russia has other ports. Ukraine does not. And on top of that, uh, air traffic became so risky that airlines, civilian airlines, uh, stopped flying both uh, on their own uh, volition and because insurers uh, felt it was no longer uh, it was no longer wise to insure flights uh, through uh, Ukrainian airspace. So Russia, simply by being menacing, could have cut off Ukraine from its uh, from a large chunk of its uh, cargo that it. it It depends on uh, every single day, uh, as does every single country. Uh, And uh, by also cutting off, uh, by forcing airlines to cut off their traffic to Ukraine. Um, Of course, less cargo is delivered by air than by sea. So that that shipping classification really was very important. And all Putin would have needed to do if he just wanted to weaken Ukraine would have been for that, uh, the shipping ban, uh, de facto ban, to take effect, and Ukraine would have struggled mightily to get the the goods it needs. Now he jumped the gun and invaded instead, but that that, uh, shipping uh, de facto ban really highlights what you can do in the gray zone, and again, you leave the other countries struggling to, to respond to it. In the case of, of Ukraine and the shipping, what can Ukraine do if, if shipping companies and their insurers conclude, uh, wisely conclude that, that ship, certain shipping lanes uh, or ship, uh, bodies of water are too dangerous? There's nothing Ukraine can do. It's very interesting in that dynamic of the gray zone and tying it into the economic crippling of Ukraine. So w- in terms of if we stick to the economic dimension for a second, the strategy now seems to be to punish Russia so that it doesn't go further than it already has done. But what effective measures do you think can be taken to directly impede uh, Vladimir Putin? There's a lot of talk about uh, banning Russia from the SWIFT international payment system, which would be quite significant. But do you believe that there is more that can be done or what you feel would be the steps needed to stop Russia from escalating tensions? 
two weeks ago, I would have said ban them from the Olympics, but Putin was smart enough to wait after the Olympics and his uh, athletes won a number of medals for Russia. Um, now that's too late. And uh, uh, I, one thing that has happened in just in, in, in the past few minutes as we speak is that uh, the Champions League final uh, has, uh, it has been decided it will be moved uh, from St. Petersburg. Uh, and that's one of the things the international community can do. Yes, sports is not exactly as, as hard hitting as, as using military force, but we have to remember that athletes and sports is, uh, that's a, an important um, reputational aspect of any country. And Russia in particular uh, puts a great deal of effort into developing um, and uh, uh, promoting its, its athletes. So that's something we can do. We can, we can ban Russian athletes from international competitions and from playing abroad. That would be a massive hit to a country as uh, athletically ambitious as, as Russia. Uh, same thing with Russian artists. Another thing is to highlight the activities Russia conducts in certain countries of the world, including Libya, uh, through its Wagner Group, um, and not just highlight, but uh, limit and uh, possibly eliminate. Um, Libya, for example, is, is, is a country where the Wagner Group is active, and Russia, of course, says it's not in Libya, However, the Wagner Group is in Libya. We could shine a light on that and also um, through uh, concerted efforts force the Wagner Group to leave Libya. So this is clearly not, again, it's not, it's not as effective as using military force against Russia. But we should remember that, that um, every, every step uh, along this way uh, is, a, is a chink in, the, in, in Putin's armor. Then on, on top of that, I hope the UK in particular uh, revokes the visas of the children of uh, leading officials and oligarchs who are already being sanctioned and who may be sanctioned. They uh, live in the West, enjoy our hospitality. Ordinarily, it would, uh, we, would not, um, we would not punish children for the sins of their fathers and mothers, but these children benefit from Putin's rule and uh, uh, through their parents. And uh, it's thanks to that wealth they are able to live in our countries. Uh, we don't have an obligation to keep hosting them. It would put a lot of pressure uh, on Putin if those uh, children and other family members lost their visas. And again, uh, a, a visa is, is within a country's gift. It's not, an, uh, it's not an offensive act to revoke it or to not issue it. Uh, but if, if those visas were revoked, uh, the the business and political elite would, I think, put more pressure on, on Putin, would put serious pressure on Putin to change his ways simply because they want their family members to keep enjoying the lifestyle we ha have here in the West. So these are certainly some of the measures that could be taken. There was something very surreal, uh, Elizabeth, that I noticed on the day that uh, Putin announced his uh, war in that he ended up hosting Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan, who had this uh, trip scheduled ahead of time and somewhat bizarrely didn't cancel it, knowing full well that there was all likelihood of a war taking place. It, the reason why it was so surreal in many ways is that the last time the Kremlin, then under the Soviet Union, launched an invasion and occupation of another country, that was Afghanistan back in 
the December 1979. Uh, and at that point, the West had aligned with Pakistan to work together to rid Afghanistan of the uh, Soviets. Now, what it seems is that uh, Russia, in terms of just not just its military strategy, but also its diplomatic approach, it is working with some countries to see if it can show that it has, still has uh, a degree of legitimacy. So it's, it's like Putin not just ca uh, calculated and war-gamed the military strategy, but he also calculated the diplomatic approach too, because you, you have these very odd images of Imran Khan actually shaking hands with Putin, which was something that was not accorded to uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, or the German chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz. Uh, so do you think Russia still has allies and friends that will support uh, it, uh, even though it has taken this occupation uh, and invasion of Ukraine? It does, uh, Sajan, you know, uh, you are the expert on, on this, but he has, Vladimir Putin, some, I would say, capital of, of fondness, fondness capital uh, among leaders of such countries. And that's what he's able to uh, use now, that capital. And let's see how long those leaders stick with him, because clearly it's not particularly palatable to support a country that invades a smaller neighbor. No, indeed. Absolutely. One last question then, uh, Elizabeth, is where do you think this is going to uh, end? Uh, or at what point can we say this is going to uh, reach a conclusion? Uh, do do we have to be concerned about the fact that you could see an occupation of other countries take place? Uh, uh, or is Putin seeking to uh, simply uh, end this uh, in Ukraine for the time being? It seems that he was expecting a swift and decisive victory for Russia. And now in, in, the, in these first hours, as we speak, in the first hours that have passed since uh, Russia began this assault, Ukraine has put up uh, quite impressive resistance, the Ukrainian armed forces and indeed um, the politicians um, of the country. Um, so like all wars, um, it, this, um, this invasion seems to have been based on an assumption of, of swift victory um, humiliation of of uh, the other side, meaning Ukraine, and then uh, withdrawal. I don't think Putin will get that. He he will see his forces bogged down, uh, just like Soviet forces were bogged down in Afghanistan um, decades ago, which was, of course, uh, Russia's or the Soviet Union's most humiliating and painful experience uh, to date. Um, as far as the Western side goes, this is really tricky. What we saw uh, at the end of last year, and indeed still uh, now at the beginning of 2022, at, for example, Poland's border with Belarus, is that there are countless moments where the defending side has to decide, do we, do we uh, retaliate uh, or do we do we uh, try to, to calm the situation? On the Polish uh, border with Belarus, that has meant, uh, uh, that has included a lot of uh, provocation, 
by uh, Ukrainian, uh, excuse me, by Belarusian forces, uh, throwing rocks, throwing uh, throwing other uh, or, or directing other violence against Polish soldiers. And those Polish soldiers um, have not retaliated. But if even one soldier had reacted, uh, reacted improperly or even just in, in uh, made this, the wrong assessment in that moment, we could have seen a really dangerous escalation. And the reason I mentioned that is that the same thing could happen now. Um, soldiers, of course, are in the chain of command, but nevertheless, at some point, even a low-ranking uh, commander, a very junior officer on the ground has to decide what needs to be done in that moment. And that's where we could see uh, miscalculation and, and as a result, a dangerous escalation. And, and the longer this war uh, or this, uh, this conflict drags on, the more such opportunities, such risks there are. And that is a, a risk for, for Russia and it's, uh, it's clearly a risk for Ukraine. And what it also means is that even if, if just one a NATO soldier in, in one of the Baltic states of Poland is somehow harmed, uh, let alone killed. It, it brings NATO into the equation as well. Um, NATO has said it won't, uh, it won't send troops uh, to Ukraine, uh, understandably because Ukraine is not a NATO member state, but nevertheless, there could be that accidental situation where uh, NATO would, uh, NATO's member states would have to respond. Well, absolutely. You've provided very important uh, perspective for us uh, on this uh, podcast. And most grateful, Elizabeth, that you were able to, to talk uh, about what has transpired and what is a very sad episode in, in Europe uh, and will be perhaps infamous in history uh, over the passage uh, of time. And certainly we all think about the uh, Ukrainians and what they're having to now deal with uh, under this uh, occupation. Uh, I can say from my own perspective that having worked with the uh, Ukrainian defense academies uh, as part of the uh, NATO's defense education enhancement program, we had uh, longstanding relations uh, with the Ukrainians and we certainly do hope that they can come out of this uh, without uh, having had their lives destroyed, uh, because that is unfortunately what this occupation and invasion of Ukraine is designed to do. So I'm most grateful again, Elizabeth, for, for you joining us. Thank you. I would have said it's a pleasure. It's uh, not a pleasure to discuss this, this uh, tragedy in Europe. And, and um, I think we uh, who are experiencing now, it now and, and um, generations to be born will remember the 24th of February 2022, just like we and, and subsequent uh, uh, generations will remember uh, September 11th, 2001. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a very poignant way to end this uh, discussion that we've had. Thank you again, Elizabeth. It's been a real uh, pleasure to talk to you. And yes, under sad times, but I'm most glad that we've had that, uh, that opportunity to discuss this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. 
For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.